Well, let me open us with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for another day to represent Jesus Christ. And Lord, today we get to represent you amongst our brothers and sisters in Christ. We get to show others your love as we come alongside them and encourage them and fellowship with them and share prayer requests and share our burdens. Lord, we have a lot of burdens at Lakeside right now. This is just one small part of the universal church of God, but we see the effects of sin, not personal sin, but the effects of sin on your creation and played out in so many lives. And we just pray for all those who are hurting today. We particularly think of Kathy Allman as she's in a very difficult time. Pray that you give her rest and peace and they could get the pain management under control. And we also pray for our sister Donna, who is just on the early side of going through this journey of cancer and I just pray that you would encourage her and strengthen her and help she and Tom keep their focus on you in the midst of everything that will unfold over the next weeks and months. Lord, we thank you for the hope we have in Jesus Christ that even when these physical bodies wear down and and one day every one of our bodies will will die physically here on the earth, we thank you for the hope of heaven, Lord where we'll get glorified bodies that will never deal with these aches and pains and diseases ever again, and we'll be with you forever. Lord, we can't wait. We ask all these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are continuing today our study of 1 Peter, so if you want to go ahead and open your Bibles or your computer apps to 1 Peter chapter 4 beginning to go through, and it'll take us a few weeks, the last section of chapter 4. And as I have reiterated over and over and over again, and I keep repeating it to you to remind you, but it also reminds me, why is all of this in the Bible? First Peter is written, I believe, to exhort Christians who were living in challenging times to live holy lives. It was not a circumstance where they were denying, Peter was not denying the real hardship that was present, but he was exhorting the believers that you need to be holy as God is holy, no matter what. It's at the end of 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 14 to 16. I've read over and over Putting away sin, putting on righteousness. Verse 14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And in the context of the larger letter, this letter was written to groups of Christians who were scattered in various areas. But part of the exhortation is that when we're living holy lives, those holy lives are evangelistic in a fallen world. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lust, which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. All that's saying is be holy as God is holy. But why? So that... In the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. In other words, some of those 
who slander and mock Christians one day will repent and believe and they'll realize when the Lord returns they can give him glory rather than cowering in fear and part of what evangelizes them is the good witness of the lives of believers. So we, like the original recipients, are to live holy no matter what's going on around us and and certainly... In our day, as the world seems, and it just seems that way, to turn increasingly dark, I say it seems that way because the human heart is always the same, there's a sense in which, yes, things are getting worse. The Apostle Paul talked about that. In the last days, things will get worse. But there's another sense in which the issues of the day are the same. The issues of the heart are the same. And when we live holy lives, particularly in a hostile culture, in a hostile environment, when our lives look different than all the lives around us, we're showing a lost and dying world the reality of the transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Peter presents this same basic type of truth in several different contexts. And one of the recurring contexts is when believers are being treated unfairly, when they're being abused. And in the specific context in which we find ourselves, and we introduced the section of First Peter chapter 4 that begins at verse 12 last week, this is a specific type of abuse. This is a specific type of hurt. It's abuse for the name of Jesus. It's persecution because of Jesus Christ. It's not the general hardships of life. This is a specific type of hardship that comes because a lost and dying world hates Jesus. And if they hate Jesus, they hate Jesus' followers. So as I introduced the material last week, and I said we would be covering it for several weeks, I introduced it not in the normal three-part outline or four-part outline. In fact, I don't even know how many parts the outline will have. But it's Biblical principles for understanding and responding to persecution. Biblical principles for understanding and responding to persecution. And the first was relatively simple, and it came from a part of verse 12. Number one, persecution of believers is normal, not exceptional. Again, this is last week's teaching. I'm just going to do a brief review. But persecution of believers is normal, not exceptional. Verse 12, beloved... Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. And the whole point of that or the main point that I was emphasizing last week is that persecution of believers for the name of Christ is the norm, not the exception. It's the rule. The believers at that time were experiencing real hardships and difficulties. The fiery ordeal, the painful ordeal was because of Jesus. It was often, as I relayed some scriptures from 1 Peter, it was often of a verbal variety of abuse, false accusations, slander. They were being shamed. They were being humiliated. They were being embarrassed. Probably not unlike what happens today in many contexts. And is increasingly happening in America when Christians don't get on board with the new norms and the new social mores. People are judged harshly for clinging to what's considered outdated, bigoted views, which is really saying they're ostracized and made to feel ashamed just for following the Bible. And following the Bible as it's written, not as it's reinterpreted to be more palatable 
to modern ears. Christians were being accused of things that weren't true, hurtful things, harmful things. They were painful. The fiery picture of something very painful to be burned. And Peter's just saying, look, don't be surprised. Don't think this is some unusual, strange, I can't believe it happened. This is what's going to happen. This is the normal. This is what you should expect. No doubt they were caught off guard. They were wondering, wait, what? why me? What's going on? How can this be? And Peter's saying, look, you've you got to open your eyes. This is the world. This is what things are going to be. Don't be surprised. This isn't a strange thing. This is normal if you follow Jesus. In John chapter 15, verse 20, that's what Jesus said. Remember the words that I said to you. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So we can get away from that. We get lulled to sleep by having lived for a lot of years, most of us for most of our lives. And I said we were all old last week and I wasn't insulting us. I felt bad about that. It's like, well, maybe some of you didn't know you were older. Um, and I apologize if I did that. I was only trying to say we're not naive. I see young people like I'm excited that my daughter's getting married soon and group of her friends were over together last night, Heather and Alex and Rachel and Nathan and some other friends, and I, I think about what they don't know yet and what they don't know that they don't know. And I don't want to tell them that life is experience. We all went through it. But the point is, we're on the other end of those things. And we can see life a little bit more clearly. But even we, because of God's protective hand that I think he's had over us and over our country can forget what Jesus said. If they persecuted him, they'll persecute us. And if it starts happening more and more, and we see it in popular culture, just read, and I won't get into politics, but I just read this week of some of the answers people gave at a forum for presidential candidates, and if you know much about religious freedom and the legal backdrop of it, it was frightening how uniform they were in the idea that those people will have to change or else. It's okay. That's normal. It's not exceptional. If we know Jesus, we shouldn't be surprised when it happens. We shouldn't be caught off guard. We should prepare our hearts. So the first principle, persecution of believers is normal, not exceptional. And that was just last week, just a brief review. Now we're on point two, which is this. Persecution should strengthen us, not destroy us. Persecution should strengthen us, not destroy us. And when we look back at verse 12, last week I was picking the front and the back end of verse 12, but in the middle there's a clause that has significance to us. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. It's a crucial concept of how we view persecution that is normal, it's not some strange thing. It's normal for 
Christ followers. And it's a concept that forces us to recognize God's sovereignty over what occurs. And it also requires us to accept what, from a fleshly standpoint, can seem like a contradiction. Namely, that our intense pain and hurt, which is unfair and unjust, is intended for our good, not for our harm, by our loving Heavenly Father. Now, I think it all comes together very easily, but it... It's tied up in the explanation gives for why we should expect it to be normal that we go through this. There's a result, there's a consequence. This fiery ordeal, these trials, this persecution for the name of Christ comes upon us, which comes upon you for your testing. This is a significant reason why God allows us, His children, that He loves to go through something that's painful at the hands of people who hate Him. It's for your testing. The persecution that comes upon believers, at least in part, is to test us. Stated another way, God uses the fiery ordeals in part to show us what we truly are. If you are God's true child, persecution will grow you, it will refine you, it will strengthen you, and it will build you up. God doesn't allow it so that you will be destroyed. Now, this is not a new Concept. In fact, Peter alludes to this idea very comprehensively in the first chapter. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire may be found a result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter is building on this idea. I think the various trials of chapter 1 go beyond persecution. Perhaps they involve more injustice than just persecution. But when we get to 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, which comes upon you for your testing, it's borrowing this exact imagery and this exact idea. Peter was drawing on an analogy of the purification of precious metals, precious gold in this case. And it's something that I always get an image in my mind because I watch all those gold mining shows. The people that are digging gold out of the water and the people that are getting it out of the snow, wherever it is. It seems like it's all up north somewhere. But they get the gold and... It always amazes me because you see them with the pan and they talk about the gold, but it's discolored. It's not all shiny gold. It's all kinds of stuff. But inevitably, at some point, just for the sake of television, they'll show it being melted down. Why? Because the impurities float. They can skim off the impurities. What do you have left? You've got gold. That's the imagery, that process for all the advances of technology. You do the same thing. You still melt it and you still skim off impurities. 
That was happening back then. And that's what's happening to us when we're being tested. The idea is to refine us. To get rid of those things that hinder our walk with Christ. To get rid of the impurities in our own life. God sometimes uses persecution, which perhaps because it refocuses us. James talked about this in broader sense of all trials, not just persecution, but it would apply to persecution. James chapter 1, verses 2 to 4. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance... And let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. In other words, the process to bring us to maturity goes through pain. That fiery refinement. And in the context of 1 Peter, it's refinement, a fiery ordeal that comes through persecution for the name of Christ. This whole idea of our testing is difficult. It can be painful, but God uses the testing to prove that our faith is real, which is encourages us and it makes us a better witness and it brings Him greater glory. And it's really, it's interesting when you think about it, persecution is sort of a paradox. I don't know if it's sort of a paradox or it is a paradox, so I'll qualify it. The people persecuting us for Jesus' sake are trying to hurt us. They're not trying to build us up. They want to destroy us. You look around our culture right now. Why are Christians assaulted verbally everything when we stand up against the popular culture? Because we're a hindrance to their sin. Because we're saying you shouldn't sleep well at night. You should be... Scared to death that your sin is heaping up judgment before a holy God. And nobody wants to hear that. When Jesus rebuked the people of his day, what did they want to do? They wanted to kill him. That's what's happening now with us. So they want to hurt us and destroy us, but God is taking that same thing motivated by their evil and He's using it for our good. The refinement really helps us get rid of all these other hindrances. If you're trusting in your own wisdom or in your financial stability or in your cohesive family, or in your citizenship in a prosperous country, or in your physical well-being, even when all those around you are doing bad, if you're putting your trust in any of those things, persecution has a way of ripping all that aside. And you're left putting your trust in God, which is what we should want and what He definitely wants. He's jealous for our affection. Even when the persecution may beat us down and humanly weaken us, God is using it to build us up. Again, it's a situation where I think various authors are illustrating the same point and using similar language that convey similar truth. I think what Peter is alluding to, Paul stated explicitly based on his own experience. 
in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. It's a familiar circumstance where Paul asked, take it away, take it away, take it away, three times. 2 Corinthians 12 verse 9, And he has said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. That's God talking to Paul. What's Paul's reaction? Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. That's the proper perspective for all of us. And again, from a human perspective, we can take comfort in the fact that Paul came to that point, but he didn't start out there. He was praying earnestly, Lord, take it away. Lord, take it away. Lord, take it away. And God finally had to say, look, this is what I have for you. So don't feel guilty if your first instinct, if you're being falsely accused or if you're being slandered or if someone's mocking you, if your first instinct is, Lord, protect me, that's not wrong. But also be aware that God may just be allowing you to endure it because he wants to refine you. He wants to show you and he wants to show the world what you're made out of. Going back to that chapter 1 reference, Peter talks about even though tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's what it's all about. We're going to see more about when Christ returns as we look later in the verses, but he wants everyone to understand that persecution is normal. This is what God does. And when God allows it, even if the other people want to destroy us, God's not going to let that happen. God's going to use it to build us up. He wants them to have the proper perspective. And understand this. Trials are one of the things that God uses to purify not just us individually, but to purify the church. Persecution is purifying to the church because it reveals who's wheat and who's tares. In fact, when Jesus gave the parable of the soils... He made it clear that for some people who initially jump up and down at the gospel, they're excited about it, they're probably telling other people about it. By our normal human reaction, we go, well, praise the Lord. But then persecution comes and everything changes. The explanation, Matthew chapter 13, verses 20 and 21, Jesus gave... He said, the one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, the exact fiery ordeal Peter is talking about, immediately he falls away. I've shared this thought before, and I'm probably, if I keep teaching, I'll share it again. But if true persecution begins to hit churches in America more, it will reveal fairly quickly who's genuinely saved and who's in the category of saying, Lord, Lord, didn't I? Didn't we? I'll never forget talking to some good friends from the former Soviet Union, one of whom I found out at the Shepherds Conferences in heaven. He was killed in an auto accident. I, I went on my first mission trip with him, preached all over California with him in Russian-speaking churches. But 
one of the things he talked about was under, and I've shared this, I think, in some context, under the Soviet Union, when everything was so tough, the church was pure. Because it cost you something to be a part of the church. I had dinner with people that were beaten and arrested one man a hundred times. If you showed up at church, you were meant business. You counted the cost. And the biggest difference when communism fell, yeah, the gospel could come in, but so could every other cult, heresy, everything else, and suddenly you don't know who's who in the churches. So persecution, when it comes, will purify. Here's the bottom line. None of us likes pain, none of us likes hurting, and none of us likes to suffer unfairly. We all have a compass that says, wait, that's not fair. And when it happens, if we're honest, our first reaction, more times than not, is not, thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to refine me, but it's, Lord, stop it. Take it away from me. But if the Lord allows you to stay under the trial, just accept it as God's perfect will for you. It doesn't mean it's easy, but God will give you the grace to endure it. It's a different context, but you don't ever want to respond to a trial the way Job's wife did when he was afflicted. You still hold fast your integrity, curse God and die. And may it never be said by any of us something like that. God is not allowing fiery trials into your life to see you destroyed. He's allowing persecution to come if it comes your way or if you see it afflicting others. He's allowing it to strengthen us, to build us up, to show the reality and genuineness of the faith. So here's the third point. Persecution of believers is normal, not exceptional. Persecution should strengthen us, not destroy us. And this point, and I'll probably be doing a variant of it next week as well, but the third point, persecution should cause us to rejoice. Persecution should cause us to rejoice. Verse 13. I'll start at verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fire ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. Verse 13. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of His glory you may rejoice with exultation. So I didn't make up the word rejoice. Keep on rejoicing. You may rejoice with exultation. Something is going on that's clear. Rejoicing is supposed to accompany persecution for the name of Christ. Again, our normal reaction when we feel pain is not to rejoice. And Peter is not in any way saying rejoice in the pain. Rather, he's trying to give us a perspective so that if this comes upon us, we can process it correctly and think rightly about it so that our heart attitude responds as God would intend. Again, it's not the first time. James said, consider it all joy. There's, a, there's an aspect of even in the midst of tears and pain, we can rejoice And verse 13 ties it very clearly to Jesus. 
but to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. It's all about Jesus. The interpretation of our sufferings is all about Jesus. And Peter is encouraging us that when, because of the name of Jesus Christ, we're suffering, we're sharing in what Jesus did. When we're subjected to hatred, abuse, slander, hardship, privation, all in the name of Jesus, we are, to some degree, sharing in His sufferings. And Peter is stating explicitly to help us internalize something that seems counterintuitive to us, because we'd all rather live pain-free, that suffering for Christ brings great blessings such that when we share in Christ's sufferings, we can rejoice, we should rejoice. We should rejoice now, and we can look forward to even greater rejoicing when Christ returns. I read it already, but we have to remember what Jesus said. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And our rejoicing isn't over the pain, it isn't over the unfairness, it's not over the injustice. Those are all affronts to God. It's because God saw in us enough of Christ to allow us to be worthy of his suffering. One of the commentaries, it was a good picture, and I'm sure I've thought of it before, but something about how the commentator phrased it put something in perspective, and I'll try and articulate it in a way so that you can draw the same encouragement. The world is heaping abuse on us. It is. It will. That's normal, not exceptional. That will increase. It will continue. And they're persecuting us simply because they can't get to Jesus. This person said, and it was interesting thought, that if Jesus was here, they'd be attacking him. But they can't get to him, so who do they attack? Everyone who has him indwelling them. Just as they would yell, if Jesus was here, they would happily yell, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Of course, that's not possible theologically. But the point is, the venom that we read about in the New Testament, when everybody turned on a dime and the crowds followed Jesus and suddenly they were screaming for his torture and death, it's new crowds with the same heart and they're just taking it out on us instead. We're identifying with Christ. We are sharing in His sufferings because we're suffering for Him. Now we see pictures of this clearly in the New Testament, the right heart attitude. And we should look back at that heart attitude and realize what Peter's talking about is this. This is an illustration of it. So for example, in Acts chapter 5, verses 40 and 41... Some of the apostles had just been mistreated, and we read this, verse 40. They took his advice, and after calling the apostles in, they flogged them. That's serious beating. That is painful. 
They flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and then released them. Verse 41. Now this is talking about the apostles who were just beaten badly. So they went on their way from the presence of the council rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. That's the attitude we want to have. That's the attitude we need to embrace. That's what Peter is calling us to. And you don't develop that attitude accidentally. You have to be thinking ahead of time. You have to have a proper understanding of your place in a fallen world in Christ. And as you look at what's going on around you, the goal is not to hide under a rock so it doesn't happen to you. It's just to prepare your heart. So that if it does happen to you, you understand what's going on. And you understand it's not an indication that God doesn't care. It's not an indication of God's love for you. So there's a rejoicing now. But there's also a future blessing that we need to keep in perspective. Verse 13 again, But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of His glory you may rejoice with exultation. And the idea is when we enter into the presence of Jesus, if we have suffered for His name, our rejoicing will go to the nth degree. It will be exponentially greater. It will be exceeding joy. Because at that moment, we'll be the recipients and we'll see with our sight what we have been promised and we believe in faith, which is it is blessed. You are blessed if you're persecuted. Jesus said in Matthew 5, verses 11 and 12, Blessed are you when men hate you, and ostracize you, and insult you, and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. So Peter's not treading new ground. He heard this teaching when it was first issued. He's just calling it to memory. Verse 23, Be glad in that day and leap for joy... For behold, your reward is great in heaven, for in the same way their fathers used to treat the prophets. In other words, God's people have always suffered. God's true children have always been hated. You rejoice. You be excited. You be thrilled. Because you're going to have great rewards one day. Now I'm going to develop this a little bit more next week because we're going to build off of this. But understand, if the time comes that we at Lakeside, individually or collectively, begin to suffer something for the name of Jesus here in America, we join a long line of faithful saints who've gone before us. In Hebrews chapter 11, in the great Hall of Faith, it's interesting because so many of the individuals by name, points of their life are being called to mind where they had success by faith. 
But there are others who are commended who lived by faith. They're not given by name, but they're commended by faith because of their suffering. Hebrews 11.36 And others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated. Men of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. If the time comes where being bold and identifying with Christ and His Word causes us to suffer, we've just gained entrance into a long club that we should have expected to be a part of all along. So remember, and prepare your hearts now before you get into the suffering. If you're already experiencing any of this for the name of Christ, well then, you rejoice. It's not some strange thing happening to you. This is what Jesus said would happen to you. And God is not using it to destroy you. God is using it to strengthen you and build you up. So let me close our time today in prayer and then we'll continue on with this section next week. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your faithfulness to us. And Lord, we thank you, even though it's hard to think about, for persecution that may one day come our way. Lord, none of us wants to hurt, none of us wants to suffer, none of us wants to be humiliated or ostracized or embarrassed or lose our job or lose our friends or our family because of the name of Christ. But Lord, if it comes, help us understand it happened to Jesus, it'll happen to us. And help us understand, Lord, that you're not trying to destroy us, you're just testing us and refining us and strengthening us. And Lord, help us even in the midst of that pain to rejoice knowing that one day our rewards in heaven are great as we share the sufferings of our Savior. Lord, we love you. Continue to lift up those who are hurting and struggling this morning. Continue to allow us to grow in your word. And I pray as Pastor Steve prepares to preach the word that you would give us ears to hear and that your spirit would apply the word to our hearts and show us how we can live out these truths. We love you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.